Let me ask you this. You're listening to the NK News podcast, so you know more about North Korea than most. But how about the South? To really understand what's happening on the peninsula, you need to know about South Korea. And now you can, through our new Korea Pro news and analysis service. This is not your average news service. It's a thoroughly researched analysis of South Korea's politics, society, and economy from an international perspective. But you know what the cherry on top is? The absolute lack of commercial influences. No ads, no sponsored articles. It's just pure, objective analysis by a team of qualified specialists. And the best part? As a listener of this podcast, you get a 25% discount. All you have to do is use the coupon code PODCAST during your sign-up. So head over to careerpro.org slash podcast and start your journey with CareerPro. That's careerpro.org slash podcast. News podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetsluth, and this pre-interview interview is recorded on Tuesday, the 9th of January, 2024, and I'm here in the studio with Ifang Bremer. Ifang, welcome back on the show. Thank you, and good morning. And Happy New Year. And Happy New Year. Okay, so we've got a couple of stories to talk about today. Where would you like to begin? I would say with last Friday. Mm-hmm. It was a, quite an eventful day here at the NK News office when... Wasn't it though? And and around in Seoul oh, and in Korea, right? Yeah, was... yeah, 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 yeah. It was quite a tense situation. We had North Korea allegedly firing artillery rounds mm-hmm. towards the, the West Sea. Okay. Yeah. So is that near Yonpyeongdo Island? Yonpyeongdo and Penyondo. So these okay. are two islands that are located very close to the North Korean border. Right. And listeners with a long memory will recall that in 2010, November 2010, North Korea actually shelled Yonpyeongdo Island during one of those artillery round fires. Yeah, causing in the deaths of yeah. uh, several ROK citizens, right? Right. So... What was interesting is that on Friday, the residents of those islands received evacuation, well, not orders, more like instructions Mm -hmm. through text. And when you say evacuation, this doesn't mean get off the island. It means, what, seek shelter. Yeah, so initially we thought that meant to get off the island, Uh but looking at, you know, the wording in Korean, Mm -hmm. it's seek shelter, yeah, as close as possible. So people, residents would uh, go to shelters nearest to them. Mm-hmm. Residents of those islands have assigned shelters based on where they live. And I'm sure they all know where they are by now. Well, I actually spoke to one of the Penyondo residents and ah. he had no clue where the nearest shelter was. Oh. But yeah, uh, obviously that was quite a tense situation because we were also trying to figure out what is going on, right? Right, because all, all that we got by initially, I think Yonhap just released a, a headline, right? About sort of seek shelter. Seek shelter, yeah, right. something like that. Without um, any details. Yeah. Throughout the day, more and more information trickled in, and mm-hmm. what it appeared to be is yeah. that North Korea shot artillery rounds, mm-hmm. and in response, South Korea was planning to do a live fire exercise also in the waters west of the peninsula. Okay. And in anticipation of a possible DPRK response to those live fire exercises, right. ROK authorities recommended citizens to take shelter. So it was a very much a precaution mm-hmm. to what North Korea might do next. Right, because that's what happened in 2010, was that, if, if I recall correctly, South Korea was doing a live fire 
shelling exercise into the waters north of Yonpyeongdo. North Korea responded with some shelling of its own. Some of those shells struck the island and killed a number of people. That's so this good, is a yeah. precaution to prevent the same kind of thing happening. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Did the North Korean shells, as far as we know, cross the, the northern limit line, the waters between North and South Korea, into what South Korea claims as its own territorial waters? Well, actually, quite interesting. Kim Yo-jong, Kim Jong-un's famous sister, mm. on January the 7th actually said that North Korea deceived South Korea into believing that the, the DPRK conducted artillery drills and that they were actually just explosions on their own land. On the land, not in the sea. Yes. So uh, we, we made it look like we, well, launches, perhaps <laughs> the wrong, like we shot some artillery shells. Yeah. But we faked you guys out. That wasn't real. It just, it's kind of like shooting a blank out yes, of a gun. Yes, yeah. And then they released this dramatic footage of these drills of just soldiers burying bombs into the soil. Uh-huh. But after that, we we were also very confused. But well, why would they do that? To test South Korea's uh, detection abilities. Okay. See, like, well, if what, how can you know for sure that we are firing these artillery rounds? Right. So presumably, if your detection methods are not accurate, yep. then we can pin down what methods you're using to detect these yes. artillery. Uh, yeah. Sorry. But then South Korea responded again, saying, well, yeah, we knew that there was some deception, but there were also real artillery shells. So adding to the confusion. Oh, wow. So South Korea <laughs> says, yeah, you faked some, but some were real. Yeah, it, and, and then now uh, we're all left still a little bit confused of what actually happened. Right. But it has quite dramatic consequences because on yesterday, South Korea basically suspended the non-hostility zone Oh. Uh, so this is an area where the two Koreas formally agreed to not to hold drills uh, in, in the, the water? Yellow Sea. Oh, in yeah. the Yellow Sea. Okay, yeah, in, so and in the West Korea and China. Sea, yeah, because yeah. that area has been contested between North and South Korea for a long time. I remember back in the late 1990s, there was shooting between North and South Korean boats. And of course, in 2002, a South Korean naval ship was sunk during the World Cup by North Korea, killing all on board. And then we had the Chonan in early 2010. So there have been events there over the years. And so this was declared a non-hostile or non-hostility zone, but that's been suspended now by South Korea. Yeah, so back in 2018, with these comprehensive military agreement, the yep. inter-Korean military agreement, both Koreas agreed to not hold any drills uh, in those risky waters. Right. Uh, South Korea says, well, North Korea has already violated that accord so many times that we consider it also non-existent now. Hmm. That's what happened yesterday. So, uh, right. and they actually announced that they will resume also South Korean drills in those risky waters near North Korea. So shelling in the direction of North Korea. I'm not sure if it will be in the direction, okay. but it will be probably much closer to North Korea than North Korea is comfortable with. Yep. Yeah, because North Korea doesn't recognize the northern limit line that South Korea, basically, South Korea draws a straight line from the end of the demilitarized zone, because the demilitarized zone only covers the land. And so the, the northern limit line is a sort of a straight line that allows all of the five islands of, of the West Sea to fall into the South Korean zone. But North Korea has long, well, at least the last 20 years, has said, we don't recognize this northern limit line. We'd like to redraw it like this. And if you look at the North Korean map, it looks kind of like a glove with these five fingers to allow South Korea to retain access routes to its islands, but all the rest of the water going to North Korea. So exactly. definitely a, a dispute there. Yeah, and I think this is actually pretty significant because, as you said before, 
this is one of those areas around the peninsula where we've we've seen the most recent yeah. conflict that involved casualties. I mean, back in 2010, right? right? So I do think that this is definitely increasing risk, uh, at least of small conflict. Yeah. Now, I'm going to ask you a question without notice. I wonder, suddenly listening to you, whether the Neutral Nations Supervisory Commission, the Swiss and the Swedes, whether they have anything to say on this or whether they're trying to insert themselves in this. I know that officially they're only supposed to be looking at stuff on land, but you know they must have some opinion about this. Possibly, yeah. I mean, I, I think there's definitely quite worrisome development from both sides. Uh, yeah, wow. And, and that this comes, of course, just, what, nine, ten days, what, a week? after Kim Jong-un really increased the rhetoric in his end-of-year speech, saying that South Korea is no longer of the same race as North Korea, we're not interested in unification, and will respond to any provocations with, uh, with deadly force. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's all, it all, looking at it all together, what yeah. happened in two weeks' time. Right. Yeah, it's, it's something that some people might get nervous over. Right. right. Now, North Korea normally does its own large-scale uh, winter exercises, uh, around this time of year. Do you know anything, whether they've started yet or whether that's coming up soon? I don't think they've started just yet. Okay. We haven't really seen any any kind of signs of that. Usually they will air at least a little bit of footage of it, mm-hmm. of soldiers in the snow. Right, o- often with no shirts on, running around in the snow. <laughs> Sometimes they will not have shirts on, yeah. Right. Yeah, wow, this is, I mean, we're already in the first half of January, and it looks like this is going to be an interesting year. Uh, I hope interesting is all. <laughs> we don't actually have to, to run and seek shelter. I hope it just remains interesting. It feels a little bit like dancing on the edge of a volcano now, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think, I think definitely um, we are at a higher risk level than a year before. Right, yeah. right. Um, because it just takes a small mistake, right? It takes a small error for a, a conflict to at least escalate. I don't think... It will escalate to a big war or anything mm-hmm. like that, but these small skirmishes are definitely a realistic scenario right now. Right. Yeah, it reminds me of my interview with uh, Michael, Dr. Michael Bosak of the uh, United Nations Command Military Armistice Commission about you know exactly this kind of thing: de-escalating, risk avoidance, peace building. Uh, I, ho- I imagine they're quite busy right now. I hope that they can uh, prevent this from from going into something uh, more kinetic. Wow. Okay. Speaking of kinetic, uh, let's move to Ukraine. The war launched by Putin on, uh, on the, the nation next door, Ukraine. We finally have, well, not finally, I mean, we've, we've had some, but we have more evidence of North Korean weaponry being used in that conflict, right? Yeah, we have very, very convincing mm. evidence right now that not just artillery shells, but actually North Korean missiles right. are being used in Ukraine by the Russians. I should, I should clarify, they're shot f- from Russia, likely, yeah. into Ukraine. Over the, um, the past few days, uh, we've seen these images appear on open sources of debris of missiles. And missile experts told us that um, looking at the specifics of those uh, missile parts, yeah. uh, they can exclude that this is an Iskander Russian missile and that they actually bear way more resemblance to the North Korean KN-23 or Hwasong-11 missile. Uh Aha. Are they two names for the same thing, the KN-23 and the Hwasong-11? Yes, they are two names for the same thing. Okay. To me, this is a really big event. Right. This is literally a smoking gun, right? These are not 
Russian Iskander missiles. These are North Korean missiles. Yes, and these are images released by uh, Ukrainian prosecutors and um, um, experts that we've talked to basically are, are all saying the same thing. This is very con convincing evidence. And it's a huge escalation because yeah. artillery shells and missiles, and these missiles actually require vehicles as well to be launched from. Uh, so transporter tells transporter erector launches yes vehicles yeah. yes and i think nk panda yesterday had a um, analysis on our website yeah. nk pro that uh, these tells are likely not russian tells be because the, the 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 dimensions of the missile are a bit different than the, the russian one so they will need <sighs> right. north korean tells to launch these so <clears throat> yeah these, this is the first time mm -hmm. i think that a north korean missile has been deployed on an active in an active battle, right? And it's quite, uh, huh. yeah, surprising that this happens in Europe on European soil. Uh, has the North Korean missile never been spotted in use in, say, Syria, for example, during the civil war there? I mean, that depends if you if you include those multiple rocket launchers or something like that. But like um, right, actual but missile, a ballistic missile, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure. I think this might be a first. Were there, on these photographs, uh, which I haven't looked at, are there visible markings? Like, is there anything that, that says, you know, made in DPRK or anything like that? Or, or well, it would be very easy if it just has Korean writing on it, right. of course, but I, that's, that's not the case. But hmm. what missile experts are looking at is the position of certain, um, how do you call them, uh, bolts? Okay, uh, yep, bolts, yeah. Or you know the, the basic shape of the missile yep. itself, little things that you can compare to the Russian one. Mm -hmm. And I, I I didn't really see this coming to be honest, because I thought artillery rounds are you know easy to to hide, or basically you can say this is an old old stock, but but a, a missile that was only presented back in I think 2018, the Fasong right, 11. Right, so it's a, a relatively it's recent. a relatively yeah. new missile. Mm. That's huge. And I think one of the things that also surprised me is how little media attention mm. in Europe there yeah. was for this, right? Um, right? North Korea is always a bit, it's literally far away from Europe, but yep. now we're seeing North Korean missiles used on a European battlefield. Yeah, and launched from a North Korean tell, it seems like, right? Yeah, it, quite possibly. My understanding is that, as an analogy, it's a bit like a train Around the world, all different trains have different uh, gauges, the width between the wheels, and they can only run on certain tracks. And it's a bit like that with a missile, that the missile can only run on the tail that's made for that missile. Yes. So right. I would really expect that if we can get some kind of more uh, official confirmation rather than just experts saying this is an African yep. missile, but maybe from government level, European level, yeah, you'd at least expect some kind of statement, mm. right? Because this is very significant. Well, what about the governments of Russia and North Korea? Russia and North Korea are not responding to these mm. allegations just yet. It's really interesting that, that, that they have, I think, consistently over the last few months maintained that there is no trade in weaponry from North Korea to Russia, despite you know, evidence and accusations to the contrary. They just keep saying, look, that there's no basis to this. This is all nonsense. We're not getting any missiles or, or anything from North Korea, right? I, I, North, rather than say, be bold and come out and say, yes, you know, they're friends and, and they're helping us in our war against the, uh, the fascist Nazi Jewish government of Ukraine, using Russia's words, Vladimir Putin's words here, rather than come out and say that, they keep saying, no, no, we're not getting anything. And that, it's an interesting line to take. 
I wonder mean, if they can continue that. It, it, it will be harder and harder, but they will probably continue denying deploying North Korean weapons. But wow. if I can just add one more thing, Please. I don't know how much time we have, but uh, this is not just significant for what's happening in Europe, but mm. North Korean engineers will also be watching very closely right. right, to the performance of these missiles on, a bat- on the battlefield. Yeah. Right? This is different from shooting a missile into the ocean. Yeah. Uh, this is literally causing deaths, right? yeah. uh, destroying uh, buildings. Right. So uh, I imagine that North Korean engineers will be closely analyzing the damage that these missiles do, and so should probably South Korea right. uh, yeah. to see how difficult it would be to stop these missiles. These uh, Hwasong 11s, are they a, a short-range uh, ballistic missile? or They're short-range ballistic missiles, yeah. but on the Korean Peninsula, they could do big damage because you could basically launch it from Wonsan and it would could reach Busan. It would still hit Busan, right? Yeah. What well, would be really interesting in the, few, in the coming weeks is to see whether North Korea has actually deployed any uh, engineers or observers to, to look at it from the ground level. We know that they had people on the ground in Syria watching the civil war from the ground there. I wonder if we'll get reports that North Koreans have been spotted you know, in Russia or in Ukraine or in ocu- Russian-occupied Ukraine to see what their weaponry is doing. That'd be very interesting. I mean, I imagine that the Russians also need some some training or help uh, right. <laughs> how to use these, right? So Yeah, especially if the, uh, who knows, maybe the buttons are written in Korean. <laughs> yeah, that's quite well possible, yeah. Right. Wow, okay, well, this is very interesting. It's a great start to the new year for you. You've just come back from a vacation uh, in our uh, combined fatherland and uh, coming back, this is, you know, you've really hit the ground running. <sighs> yeah, that's right. I mean, it's quite an intense uh, start of the uh, North Korea year. Yeah, I'm curious what, what, will, what will come. All right, we'll talk to you again in another few episodes. Thanks for coming on the show, Ifang. Thank you for having me. MK News has launched a new app that makes staying updated on all things North Korea easier than ever. The app gives access to the latest articles so you'll never miss a breaking story. It's fast, convenient, and designed with readers in mind. Our team is dedicated to bringing you the most accurate and insightful information about North Korea with content and analysis unavailable elsewhere. Don't delay. Download the NK News app from Apple's App Store or Google Play and stay connected with the latest North Korea news and analysis. The app also works with NK Pro subscriptions, offering full access to NK Pro content. guest is Stephen Mercado, a former CIA analyst and open source officer who worked for most of his career in the Foreign Broadcast Information Service, FBIS, later named the Open Source Center, now the Open Source Enterprise. He's also a translator, mainly of Japanese to English, lately translating declassified diplomatic documents for the Woodrow Wilson Center's International Cold War History Project. He retired in 2017. Uh, welcome on the show, Stephen Mercado. Well, thank thank you for inviting me. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your background to the extent that you're allowed to share it. Sure. I was interested in French language when I was at university. And uh, at the same time, I decided to start studying Japanese uh, as a hedge because I wasn't sure that a French, uh, de- a French major was going to get me very far uh, in the job market. 
And from that, uh, developed an interest in, uh, in Northeast Asia and eventually uh, pursued that interest in, in my government career and uh, continuing to do so today. So as you mentioned, uh, I'm translating today, among other things, I'm a translator and a writer and primarily translating from Japanese into English and primarily writing on subjects either in open source intelligence which comes from my days of the Foreign Broadcast Information Service, and then quite often on, on Asian topics, uh, particularly Japanese ones. Did you also learn the Korean language? Yes, still learning, still, still, uh, still working on that. I, I started studying Japanese around the age of, well, I think 21. Mm-hmm. And I started uh, Korean much later in my 30s. And, and if you, you've studied language too, right? So you know that the, the earlier, the better. So I'll always be studying Korean. So your um, uh, Japanese facility is, is much better than your Korean facility? I Oh, yes. Yes, I would say so. Okay. Tell us a little bit about the uh, the Foreign Broadcast Information Service, now the Open Source Enterprise. Uh, what is it and uh, when was it formed and what does it do? Right. Well, in the lead up to the Second World War, when propaganda became uh, uh, something on the scene and various countries began to broadcast propaganda via radio, Naturally, there became an interest in various countries to find out what what the other countries were broadcasting. And so in the case of the United States, this led to the creation in, I think it was June of 1941, of what was called the Foreign Broadcast Information Service, which was established by the U.S. government originally under the FCC, right, which governs radio broadcasting in the United States. And they were primarily uh, interested in monitoring the the access radio broadcast. So that would be Germany, Italy, and Japan. And then from there, uh, it continued throughout the war. Um, once the war started, it it uh, it became uh, part of that effort, uh, listening to the the access broadcast. And then after the war, the U.S. government decided that it was still useful to have a an organization that would follow radio, you know, information. So they they kept it on. Except in 1947, it came under the the Central Intelligence Agency. It was no longer at that point under the FCC. Ah, and so it, it to this day it still uh, uh, monitors what other countries say on their uh, radio broadcasts and, and other media. Is that right? That's correct. In, in addition to that, what happened was there was a separate organization that engaged in what we call document exploitation, which is reading basically reading print media. Mm-hmm. And in 1967, that that merged with FBIS. That was called the Foreign Documents Division, the FDD. So that merged with yeah. FBIS, and then FBIS essentially at that point became sort of an OSINT, you know, one one shop, one stop shop for OSINT in in the government. And so today, that's why the open source enterprise is engaged not only in radio and print, but also you know in the internet and basically anything that's not a secret. And you, you've you've mentioned the the word there, OSINT, or the um, I guess it's uh not an acronym, but it's uh, putting together uh, open source intelligence. So that's, as you say, all forms of information that are not classified, um, which includes radio and, and print and, and internet. Is there anything else that I'm missing in there? Well, it's really expanded in recent years because one of the, the fascinating developments was the development of commercial satellite imagery. Because, mm. you know, as you know, in the 19, let's say the 1950s and, and beyond that, uh, that was a highly, highly classified form of intelligence. And if you didn't have your own satellite, and only the government had satellites, then you couldn't engage in what was called uh, imagery intelligence or IMINT. 
Uh, now I think it's got other names, but essentially, you know, satellite imagery. But uh, now, you know, anyone can buy that. And many people, that, that's become a key source of information. Uh, on North Korea, for example, we often see uh, articles written around commercial overhead in the website 38 North. And I think, I think NK News does, does it also. We also use a lot of overhead satellite imagery uh, for articles at NK News too. My colleague Collins Worker has a particularly well-trained eye at spotting things that I could never see in satellite imagery. Right. So it, it's a very highly developed discipline, and it was once an entirely classified mm. discipline, but now that also falls under the, the overall category of OSINT. Right. Uh, yeah, so let's uh, let's talk about an article that you wrote about 20 years ago called Sailing the Sea of OSINT in the Information Age, published in the CIA Journal Studies in Intelligence. A lot of people may not know that the CIA actually publishes a journal called Studies in Intelligence. Is that available to anyone who wants to read it? Uh, yes, it is. It's it's online. It's at CIA.gov. Okay. Yeah, I, uh, that's actually how I first came across your name years ago while searching something related to a North Korean graphic novel that I'd read. I'll come back to that later on in the interview. Uh, so this article that you published in Studies in Intelligence, Sailing the Sea of OSINT, curious listeners, as you said, can find it at CIA.gov by uh, searching for that title. North Korea has increased its online source output in, in recent years with more and more websites like Uri Minzokiri, uh, YouTube channels, Weibo accounts, and even Instagram accounts. Is this increasing our general knowledge of North Korea, even though this is all uh, government-sanctioned propaganda? Well, I would say it probably is. If if you don't have access to the print media, then these uh, online sources would, would be your only sources of information coming from North Korea. And although we tend to think of information from Pyongyang as propaganda, um, propaganda, first of all, has a use in terms of analysis of regime intentions and messaging. And second, propaganda can also hold factual information. We can't, we can't simply dismiss it because it's propaganda. That's a good point. When you think about the, sort of the history of open source intelligence, are there any sterling examples that stand out to you of, uh, of things that came from OSINT that have made a difference or uh, have had a big impact? Well, I, I think one of the interesting sort of achievements of open source was when the U.S. intelligence community called the Sino-Soviet split, I think starting in the late 50s even, and, and then writing in the early 60s. And mm. this is this is also an article from the journal Studies and in Intelligence. It's title includes the term double demonology. And essentially, the writer, the article points out that uh, open source analysts and, and all source analysts reading open sources, I think essentially the, the party journals of Beijing and Moscow and, and other Chinese and Soviet sources, uh, realized that there was a widening rift between the two powers very early. And, you know, they wrote their conclusions and, and probably were at the forefront of the of the analytical perception that this was not a Chinese or Chinese-Soviet monolith, that there were cracks developing and, and widening in a severe way. So within the community, there was skepticism in some parts, particularly in the, uh, I think, people in the covert parts mm. who maintained for years that what the open source analysts were reading was simply a vast and clever campaign of deception. Right. But in the end, it turned out that that the uh, the tensions between Moscow and Beijing were real. And so, you know, hat tip to the open source officers who uh, who charted that, you know, that discord through basically party journals and other open sources. The interesting I learned from your article was that the uh, the I in FBIS uh, used to originally stand for intelligence, foreign bureau, sorry, foreign broadcast intelligence service. And that was 
later on downgraded to information. So I, I really got the sense in your paper that there's been this sort of looking down by the uh, the covert operatives on uh, people looking at open source intelligence. Is that something that still continues, do you think, even though, I mean, I know you retired in 2017, but is that a sort of a, a perennial split? Well, there's a, yeah, it's an interesting question. There's, I would say in general that open source is, is accepted today increasingly these days as, as a legitimate source of intelligence. There's been a lot of back and forth, I think, over the years, because there's a basic perception that intelligence equals secrets, right? And secrets right. must be something that we steal, because otherwise, you know, we don't steal open sources. So if we read it in a newspaper, is it really intelligence? But I would say, yes, it, it's, it still can be. You know, you have to look at it, sift it, weigh it against other sources of information and what you know, and, and if it you know, if it if it stands up, then then you know you go ahead and you publish, you disseminate it, and and it is an intelligence of a sort. It may be a less sexy intelligence because again, reading the newspaper doesn't sound like something you'd see in a James Bond movie. But I don't think I ever saw James Bond reading a newspaper, but I could be wrong. <laughs> I think he's more of a human operator. But no, I would say I would say today it's increasingly um, accepted as as a form of intelligence, although again, maybe not the most sexy kind. And Probably if you look at it in terms of baseball, right, when human works, it probably works very, very well, because if you've got somebody on the inside, you know, any country doing human, well, you may have something very valuable. Uh, with, with open source, even with all, you know, looking through all the possible sources you can, you're probably, when you're successful, going to be hitting singles more than home runs. It seems to me that the most important thing for, um, well, going back, uh, so... Open source intelligence work can be done uh, in English, but most of it needs to be done in the in the original languages. So it seems that the the most important resource you need, and you you certainly mentioned this in the conclusion of your article, is that you need a a substantial number of officers who are competent in these important languages like Arabic, Chinese, Farsi, Korean, and other languages in order to have a, a sustained OSINT operation. But not just in America, but in other countries around the world, language training is, is one of the first things that go when, when budgets are cut and or when um, resources are deployed elsewhere. That's true. And I think that's that's a challenge today. In the United States, we read about universities cutting back on the liberal arts and, and language instruction is part of the liberal arts. So if you're recruiting from the universities, you know, the pool of university graduates, you may be recruiting from a pool of students who on the whole, are less likely to have foreign language coming into an organization, in which case you can still train them. But like, like I said earlier, with language acquisition, the earlier the better. So if you can hire somebody who started studying, you know, a foreign language of interest at the age of 18 or even 14, you know, the high mm -hmm. school, then that's better than, than hiring somebody at 25 and starting starting them off on language at that point. Right. And, and maybe the, the holy grail is a bunch of speakers who were uh, heritage speakers and uh, and get it from uh, from their parents. Yes, that's certainly one way to do it. Although it's it's not it's not the only way. And right. heritage speakers, yes, they they can be terribly terribly valuable and 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 should not be overlooked as a source of recruitment when you when you're trying to, and not just government. I mean, anyone trying to put together a team of people to look at a at a foreign issue where you mm -hmm. know you need people with language skills you know, heritage speakers are great. With the, uh, the rise of artificial intelligence, is there a, uh, do you see a, a time where a lot of OSINT work will just be done by computers and, and it may not even be necessary to have so many people trained in foreign languages? 
I would say not yet, not yet. I know that, for example, machine translation uh, has been a thing, uh, an object of in investment by the uh, the government since the Second World War, yeah. and today it's really it's really pretty good, right? If you if you use the tools that are out there, not even the specialist tools like Tradoc or whatever, but if you use just what's available like Google Translate, it does mm -hmm. pretty well. And it's wonderful for getting the gist of what you're looking at, right? Right, but you can't you can't rely on it, and so it'd be really dangerous if you just took, oh, let's say, just you're going to run everything that that's coming out of Pyongyang through a computer, and um, you're just going to publish it and, and and disseminate it to people who are interested and who don't know anything about Korea, right? Yeah, that's really pretty dangerous because even if you know people will say, well, it's ninety percent accurate now. Well, that means that one line out of ten is wrong. And if you have somebody, you have to have a human in the loop with a human in the loop. You know, AI, machine translation, all of this is really great. It's really, really great. It's like when we went from pens to typewriters, and then we went to computers, right? Right. Each time, each development was it made things more efficient, but you still need somebody you know who can write and for you know, the issue of foreign languages, you can run materials through a translation machine and they are getting better and better, but there are still mistakes and you need somebody to sit there and catch the mistakes. Right. So it's, it's, it's what you call it. It's a real enhancement for efficiency. If, if you give it, if you give machine translation or AI to a, for example, a Korean linguist who, who knows Korean and he can run the Korean text through. And I mean, mm. like, if you're looking at like a hundred page document in Korean, yes, the Korean linguist yeah. can read the hundred pages. But you know, if you run it through machine translation first, he goes, Oh, these are the five pages of the hundred that I really need to focus on. And then he can make sure that those five pages are cleaned up, that there's no errors in them. Right. So it's not just about putting an entire text through a translation, but you can also do analysis and look for keywords and things, right? You can I'm not sure how good that is yet with audio, but certainly with text, you can go through and find out, you know, give me all the the articles in the last five years in the Rodong Shinmun that, that include the uh, the phrase a strong and prosperous nation or something like that. And, and that can save you a whole bunch of time. Exactly. Oh, it's, it's, a marvelous, it's a marvelous time saver when you have tools like that. Now, how how's North Korea using open sources uh, from within and beyond the Korean Peninsula uh, to gather information that's useful to, to its government? A lot of people think that North Korea has no internet at all, but uh, you you were actually one of the first people to say that in public about two decades ago in your article, Hermit Surfers of Pyongyang, North Korea and the Internet. Uh, that must have been a new idea to a lot of people that there were North Koreans trying to to mine the Internet for open sources. Yes, I, I, I wrote that in order to bring people's attention, the idea that here you have a country that is in many ways highly controlled, that limits and regulates contacts with the foreign world, you know, outside its borders. However, because science and technology, for example, is important for you know the development of industrial products and a whole whole yeah. host of other reasons, that Pyongyang went ahead many years ago establishing methods of collecting foreign information of a technical nature that they required. Mm -hmm. So this resulted at one point in the creation of not, you know, they don't use the internet widely. Not everyone mm -hmm. can just hop on the internet in North Korea, but they created an intranet. Uh, available for people who, again, you know, needed to know this information, scientists, engineers, students. They could go on the intranet and they could see information, I think largely of a technical nature, uh, that would, you know, solve questions for them. 
So it was useful information, and they understood that uh, useful information could be found outside the borders and could be brought in, and I think you know regulated and used, you know, to their advantage. So presumably somewhere in North Korea, there's a uh, team of, I guess you could call them scourers and gate gatekeepers, that they're scouring the internet for useful information and then porting that through to the intranet so that people inside the country can find it. Right. They must uh, they must have a group of people who are, what do we call it, curating? They're curating the information. Curating, they're sifting, right. They're sifting, perhaps in some cases, they're translating, they're grouping it by subject, they're you know, setting it up so that it can be used. It's not just people inside North Korea either. One of the interesting things about the approach was, I think before the creation of the intranet, they had contacts overseas who would send them things, send them documents of interests, uh, either in paper or perhaps in some cases faxes. Mm -hmm. And in places like, and this is this is the North Korea, you know, media, uh, the Grand People's Study House, for example, has a, mm -hmm. what they call an Aguk section of the library. Aguk being, you know, patriot, right, or patriotism. Right. And this is a collection of foreign works sent to North Korea from overseas, you know, by, let's assume in most cases, ethnic Koreans living in places like Japan and China. Yeah. Ah, okay. So that's that's kind of a uh, an open source clearinghouse then, is it? The Grand People's Study House. Right. It's the Library of Congress for North Korea. And, you know, the Library right. of Congress is full of foreign publications, and I think the Grand People Study House has a good number of them, too. Yeah, your, your paper, The Hermit Surface of Pyongyang, mentions a, a body called the Central Scientific and Technological Information Agency, or CSTIA, which is under the uh, North Korean Academy of Sciences. Uh, how does it fit, fit into this uh, picture? What does it do? Well, one of the things it does, I think it, it, it collects or it has access to the collected information from overseas. And then it basically it's a translation and gisting service. In some cases, I think it translates text or portions of text. In other cases, it writes reports or gists, summaries of texts uh, in mm. Korean for the local uh, audience to read. And then these are put out in publications published by the CSTIA. And it, it goes around, I think, to people who probably need them, whether they're universities or let's say factories you know, whatever group needs to know about foreign developments in coal technology or what have you. We've reported at NK News this year, uh, and well, for the last several years, that uh, there's a, a very, uh, there's a great concern amongst the leadership of North Korea about people having access to uh, culture from abroad, you know, um, including but not limited to South Korean uh, movies, TV and music. And I wonder whether the curators, the people who are allowed to look at uh, the internet and, and to sort of surf the, the web, whether they are more rigidly, uh, more strictly monitored or, or uh, whether they are up for more uh, ideological reinforcement training to make sure that they don't become tainted by, by overseas culture. Because it, it's possible while you're looking online for rocket information, rocket technology information, you might accidentally end up watching a, a YouTube video or something. <laughs> well, that's, I guess that's a danger. But then anyone using the internet in North Korea must be aware that all internet activity can be traced. So it seems to me very foolish for, for anyone surf, surfing the net out of North Korea that they would stray beyond the boundaries of what they should be doing.
But in, in general, it seems to me that they have a, you know, kind of what the, the intelligence community might call a need to know basis for knowledge, right? Whereas yeah. secrets may be unavailable to the average person, but if if you have a need to know it for one reason or another, you're granted access. So for example, we've seen accounts over the years that the previous leader, Kim Jong-il, was quite interested in, in film, was a fan of mm. motion pictures, and had amassed a large library of foreign films. And I think it was the, the South Korean director, Shin Sang-ok, uh, when he ended up in North Korea, yeah. he wrote in his memoirs, I think that directors and other people in the film industry were given access to those foreign films, not to taint them with foreign ideology, but to make better North Korean films. So I imagine that approach right. is, is probably pretty general, that you will see foreign architectural information. If you're an architect, you're given access to the latest developments in chemistry, if you're a chemical scientist, and so on. North Korea last month put up its, uh, it successfully launched its first reconnaissance satellite into orbit. And of course, one of the questions is, where do they get their technology from? Is it likely that this is the kind of thing that they might have got off of their... Uh, obtained by scraping the internet? Well, that's a good question. Uh, since I'm not an aerospace engineer, I, I have no clear idea of how much relevant information of that sort we could scrape off the internet. Right. That's, that's a good question, though. Uh, now, in March 2021, in Studies in Intelligence, you published an article, Going Beyond English to Better See the World. And uh, we've already talked about the importance of learning foreign languages to look at the original source text. Now, over the years here on on the NK News podcast, we've talked about the value of knowing Korean to be able to look at Korean sources that are not translated. But you mentioned in your paper also the the value of other languages like uh, Japanese, German, Chinese, and Russian because of their geographical proximity in some cases and their uh, historical involvement in Korea's history and division. Could you say more about that? Yes. So the first one, which is geographic proximity, is is a good way to to approach any question of open source intelligence. So for example, if you were interested in Russia, you would, you know, you would do well to look at sources from the border, right? From Finland in the West to Japan in the East. So it's the same thing with North Korea. If you look at North Korea on the map, you see that the North Korea is bordered by China and Russia and across the sea of Japan, there's Japan. So for that geographic proximity, we can assume off the bat that reading sources in Japanese, Chinese, and Russian should offer us some good insights into North Korea. In some cases, information that we may not see elsewhere. Uh, we may never see it elsewhere, or we may see it first in Japanese. In publications, we see this quite a lot. For example, to give you a case of the um, seeing something sooner rather than later, there was a, a U.S. Army sergeant named Charles Jenkins, who at one point uh, ended up in North Korea for about 40 years, I think. Yes. Before, before getting out in the early 2000s. And then he wrote his memoir of his time in North Korea. And a Japanese translation was produced also. And the Japanese mm -hmm. translation came out three years ahead of the, uh, of the English original. Three years? Yes. So if you wanted to wow. know what did, what did Sergeant Jenkins see and learn in his four decades in Pyongyang, you'd be better off. I mean, it'd be, it'd be helpful for you if you knew about the Japanese version, which was earlier. And also, too, the Japanese version was better edited and ah. um, came with a nice chronology, which was lacking in the English version, which was finally published by the University of California three years later. So you would have done better with the Japanese than with the English. And to cite another example, 
there was a chef who used to make sushi and other dishes for Kim Jong-il. He goes by the name of Fujimoto. And he published several books on his experiences as Kim Jong-il's sushi chef. Yeah. To my knowledge, now, I don't think any of these books have ever appeared in English and probably never will, given the nature of the the publishing industry in the United States. Mm. Uh, They've been published in Korean, at least some of them. Right. So if you wanted to know what the leader's personal chef saw in his, you know, in his years of service, you would either have to approach it through Japanese or Korean, but you won't get it in English. So these are examples of what you can learn by going to sources that are next to to North Korea. And then I, right. I also had mentioned the historical the historical background too. If you're doing historical research, or even some cases, you may still you may still gain information. But uh, Pyongyang's socialist, you know, comrades during the Cold War, you know, mm-hmm. had insights into North Korea because they had they had embassies there, they had contacts with North Korea. These would be Poland. East Germany, those countries of the Warsaw Pact. So in fact, right. what you see is, I think I mentioned in the article, here in Washington, the Woodrow Wilson Center with its Cold War International History Project is publishing documents from the major players of the Cold War. And some of this relates to North Korea. These are declassified documents from Poland, from the former East Germany, you know, from China, from Russia dealing with North Korea in the 50s, the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And these are insights that may not be available in English. We, we never had an embassy in Pyongyang. We didn't have people reporting from Pyongyang. Right, and you, you've been involved in that project too, translating some uh, declassified Japanese documents uh, for the uh, Woodrow Wilson Center's International Cold War History Project. Um, can you tell us about any of them that relate to North Korea that are interesting? Well, actually, I think I haven't really done any on North Korea. I think most of the documents I've, I've received have had to do with China and the United States. But that's also, uh, in that case, Japanese, in because of its proximity and its interest, uh, its regional interest is also a useful source language to look at. Oh, very much so. Very much so, yes. And those documents are all available on the uh, Woodrow Wilson Center's uh, Cold War International History Project website, aren't they? That's right. They have a database uh, with all the translations. Generally, how many years elapsed before a typical diplomatic document is, is declassified? That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. And it probably varies by country according to whatever laws that they've set up. Mm, okay. Uh, in your article, you also mentioned some other languages that people might not immediately think of uh, as being useful for research in North Korea, like uh, Brazilian and Iranian. Uh, why those languages? Well, a lot of it has to do with, it could be diplomatic reasons. For example, Brazil has an embassy in Pyongyang and the North Koreans mm. have an embassy in Brazil. So Something as simple as if the uh, the embassy has an open house or they're offering an exhibit of art or something, you know, some soft power exhibit, it may be in the newspaper in Brazil, or, you know, it may, some account of a Brazilian embassy function may surface in Brazilian media or elsewhere. So you have that, You it could be trade, it could be things like that. Realize now that I made a slip of the tongue, and for our listeners at home, there I realize, of course, Brazilian is not a language; it's Portuguese. So. Portuguese, right? Right. <laughs> yes. uh, that was a rookie mistake. <laughs> of course, Hungarian researcher and academic Balaj Salantai, who's been on this podcast before, he wrote a great book on North Korea as seen through declassified Hungarian documents, as a as a a good example of someone bringing foreign language sources into English. Are, are there others that uh, that you can think of? Yes, and I've I've heard really good things about about his his work too i wish i had i should read it at some point 
But um, another example would be there's a there's a Japanese researcher called Imotomai Imo mm -hmm. who is a, he's an expert on the Japanese Cold War, and mm -hmm. the language he reads is Russian. He doesn't read Korean, but mm -hmm. at one point uh, he wrote a, a book called Moscow and Kimo Song, which is available in Japanese and Korean translation, but not in English. Right. And based on declassified Soviet archives and Soviet memoirs, he put together sort of the Russian view of developments in Pyongyang, you know, leading up to the, the Korean War and beyond. So that's, that's, that, that can be quite an interesting viewpoint. Also, yeah. what, what that Japanese scholar did was he, he wrote that one book on Moscow and Kim Il-sung. He also became a translator, and he translated a work by a guy, sorry, we'll call it, he's a rector of, of a, a university in Moscow. He wrote a book called North Korea, North Korea's, uh, the, sorry, the Korean War, like the mysteries and truth, something like that, reading yeah. from the Japanese title. And apparently it's a major work. It was published by Ross Penn, which I understand is a major Russian uh, publishing house. Again, he's mm. he's the rector of, uh, what was it, the Moscow State Institute of International Relations, and has a great resume. So his work is now published in Russian, available in Japanese, but again, it's not in English. Right. So if you had interest in the, the Korean War from a Russian historical viewpoint, you're in luck if you read Japanese. Yeah. In your paper, you write that we can gain ground truth from direct access to primary sources. Now, that seems like a no-brainer, at least where nonfiction writing is concerned. But what can we learn of value from fiction writing, like reading novels, um, like for North Korean novels, for example? Well, I think, I think, no, I think novels... First of all, in a very broad sense, they give you some idea of the character of a country, you know, for lack of a better word. If you're interested in in North Korea, you know, what what is the propaganda line? You can you can read KCNA every day, you can read the Nodong Shinmun, but you can also read the novels because the novels in North Korea are meant to educate the public in what is correct, correct mm. behavior, correct thinking. So you'll pick up sort of the main points of the propaganda in a, in many cases, much more entertaining form by reading mm. a novel than by reading the daily dispatches of KCNA. So you'll learn the propaganda points that way too. And you, you just pick up a lot of, uh, a lot of incidental information that you would like in any other novel, because in a sense, a novel is a mirror held up to society the time that it's written. Mm -hmm. And you can even pick up an idea of, to some extent, what what does North Korea know about the outside world? So when you read North Korean novels and you see references to the Clintons or the Carter administration, you know, the names of mid-level, well, not mid-level, but, you know, non-elected staffers at the National Security Council or something like that, you right. think to yourself, well, that's, that's more information than I expected a North Korean novelist to have. It's quite impressive. Or I think I think you mentioned that you had read a review of mine earlier when I I reviewed a North Korean spy novel. Yeah. In that spy novel, the first part of the novel, the hero is fighting against the Imperial Japanese Army during the colonial period, and he's referencing the uh, the Japanese Army's Nakano School, which was the training training uh, facility for Japanese Army uh, spies and commandos, and then. In the second part of the novel, when the hero is up against the U.S. Army after the war, mm -hmm. uh, he's going up against the counterintelligence corps of the U.S. Army. And so there's mm -hmm. these references to things that are 
you know, fairly highly specific, both on, you know, the Japanese historical side and on U.S. Army intelligence, you think, well, that's, well, that's pretty impressive. You know, you start to wonder, well, maybe, maybe it's not such a hermit kingdom after all, right. if you see, if you see such references in a novel, which is, again, is, mm. you know, freely available to the public and, and the novelist, if he hasn't ever gone overseas, he mm. picked it up at a library or someplace. So these resources, you know, the information is there and it's circulating. Mm. So in some extent, to some extent, novels can tell us what the other side knows and what they would like, you know, in, in their case, the reading public to know and understand. Right. Now, the open source enterprise has been translating open source materials from Korean into English for decades. Uh, as a general rule, are such translations made publicly available? For many, many years, you could buy FBIS products uh, through the Commerce Department of the United States. Uh, they were called daily reports. They were issued in paper. And then there was a time when there was a transition to to uh, CD-ROMs, when that yeah. was a thing. And then there was an intranet of sorts, I guess, which if you, in, in the case of the CD-ROM, I think, and the, the intranet, if you had, if you had business with the government, you could, you could subscribe. I think that was the thing. I don't think it was for for everyone, but if you if you had a contract with the government, then you had a basis for subscription, something like that. But that that went away a number of years ago. I think it's a great pity that that such translations are not made more publicly available. Uh, do you know if that's a, a policy or a legal matter? You know, I, I, uh, I I'm not sure why why that happened, but I, I know that there were many people because I I talked to a number of academics in those years who asked me what happened and. Can we get it back? Because right. they really liked it. And if you go to if you go to universities in the United States and, and other English-speaking countries, maybe elsewhere, mm. a lot of the resources are there in the university libraries, both in paper and in microfiche, in some cases, microfilm. Uh, so you can see decades of translations and uh, some in some cases it's just transcription, you know, because mm. KCNA English would be printed, bound, and distributed. Right through the Commerce Department for many years. That's how that's how you got KCNA before the internet. Is you subscribed to FBIS? Yeah, it, it just seems that around the world there must be multiple groups translating North Korean open source texts for their own analysis, and we, we of course do some of that at NK News and NK Pro, for example. Uh, and since adequate translators are such a scarce resource, it, I think that if there were more open sharing of translations of open source material, that would be a win-win situation for everyone. Oh, that that would be that would be great. That would be really good. Yeah, yeah. You, uh, I think in your paper, you mentioned so many things that uh, are out there but have never been translated and, and published. I'm thinking we've already talked about uh, the South Korean director, Shin Sang-ok. He wrote a hefty memoir that only exists in uh, in Korean. And there is an unpublished English translation that I've seen referred to here and there, but yeah, it's never been made publicly available. Right. So you think about things like that and... Um... Yeah, the, it would really it would really be helpful to to have more of those those works out in the open. This year, you've written a number of book reviews for NK News, five of which have been published. And you recently wrote a review about a Japanese language book that you read called "The Complete Encyclopedia of North Korean Anime." The review is yet to be published, but I wanted to ask you because I'm interested in North Korean comic books. Is the book worth reading? Well, I really think it is. If you're interested in in anime or manhwa, whatever. Uh, Yes, it's it's it really is encyclopedic. It's just a breath of breath of knowledge and an encyclopedic approach to 
to North Korean uh, animated film, you know, from the mm. beginning uh, up until the present. The book was published this year. So there is uh, information on products that were disseminated this year. So it's very up to date. The level of detail uh, is extraordinary. He, um, he, or he admits he's a collector of North Korean animated products. So he's, he's a fan, but, but he takes a very detailed and, and uh, rigorous approach to it as well. So it's not just gushing. You learn a lot of information in there as well. The, the chronology itself, he has a chronology at the back of the book, extends for something like a dozen pages with just, you know, year by year, what was published, mm -hmm. what, for example, what was Kim Jong-il issuing on a particular year, you know, his, you know, art of the film or whatever, some other aspect of uh, something to do with animation that he might have written some guidance for will be in the chronology, you know, it's really, really I've never seen this level of detail on this particular subject, you know, animated film uh, anywhere else. So I think it is it is worth a read. The trouble is you, you know, in Japanese, although I wouldn't be surprised if if it's not in Korean before long, because the Korean mm. publishing industry does very, very well in its translation of Japanese uh, material. One thing I've heard rumors about for years is that North Korea worked on North Korean animators worked on some American animation movies and, and this book, The Complete Encyclopedia of North Korean Anime, actually verifies that, doesn't it? Yes, yes, because some of the um, the American production was was farmed out to uh, overseas companies and some of whom then farmed it out to North Korea. Mm. So according to the book, and I've seen this in other sources as well, animated features such as Pocahontas, mm. I think The Lion King, and other other Western features were done, you know, just were subcontracted, not the whole thing, but parts of it were subcontracted to North Korea. And I was very interested to learn that there's something that connects North Korea indirectly to the U.S. cartoon series, The Simpsons. Yes, yes. That's, uh, again, the, the more you learn about uh, North Korea through, through different sources, the, the, the more surprised you can be, right? That, right. Um, that fellow who, uh, who who runs Acom Productions in Seoul, which is... Uh, Nelson Shin. Nelson Shin, who's done a lot of work for The Simpsons over the years, was also involved. He created his own animated film based on... Mm. A, it's a Korean story, right? Empress Chung. Yes. And, you know, used North Korean sources, uh, resources to, uh, to, to do it. So it was an actual, you know, example of North-South cooperation uh, during the Sunshine right. Period. You uh, wrote in your review that the top three North Korean animated series, namely uh, Clever Raccoon Dog, Boy General, and Squirrel and Hedgehog, are popular across various media. As a student of North Korean graphic novels, what surprised me looking at them is that there's quite a lot of steady output published in, in comic book form every year, but so few of them have characters or stories that pop up elsewhere. Right, right. And I guess my question there, because I, I don't, don't know, but I wonder... So... Right, this guy, this guy who's wrote, who's written this encyclopedic work on on anime, he did it from overseas, right? Mm. He's never been in North Korea. He hasn't had the no. opportunity to, to interview anyone at the Korean studios or anything like that. Right. So he mentions a few examples, primarily from those those three top animated series where you know they became comic books or you you see them on on the sides of buses, things like that, but. Since he has never been in Pyongyang and he didn't have a chance to interview North Koreans, it's possible that there may be much more of it than, than he knew of. Yeah. And that brings me back to the uh, the review that you wrote of the North Korean two-part novel, Changgong, published uh, 
in two volumes in 2005 and 2006, totaling about 900 pages. So first of all, kudos to you for reading 900 pages of a North Korean published novel in the original. I find that North Korean paper quality and the closeness of the type font are uh, severe disincentives to re reading too much. It's really, it's really difficult. If I wasn't so interested in the topic, because mm. I actually wrote a book on the Nakano school many years ago. So when I discovered oh. that the novel, you know, has the hero fighting against the Nakano school, I thought, oh, I've, I've got to read this one. So I, I put it in effort. It took a long time. I, was, I bet it did. I was uh, also, like you, interested to see the level of historical knowledge that uh, was included in... I've only read the uh, the North Korean graphic novel adaptation, but you see a lot of that uh, coming through there as well. But it wasn't the only time that I've seen that. In fact, the, the first three North Korean graphic novels that I encountered back in 2010 were all written and illustrated by um, North Korean author named Choi Hyok, and he constantly surprised me with his knowledge that he peppered his books with, including Nazi race theory, uh, naming one of his American characters Spielberg, uh, a reference to the Cannon <laughs> Institute and Jack Cannon, whom you've already named, uh, who in English doesn't even have a Wikipedia page, but he seems to be all over North Korean comic books, uh, and a quote from a Turkish Cypriot American scholar of psychology who is not really very well known outside of his field of expertise, let alone in Korean. So it, it also made me wonder what kind of uh, of access these North Korean authors to uh, must have to outside works to to draw from? I, I think they have very good access because these are, as you mentioned, these topics are not well known. These are foreign topics, right? Many of them right. involving the United States, like uh, Jack Cannon, the U.S. intelligence officer of the U.S. Army, right. not at all well known. And then you find them in, in North Korean media and you're like, what kind of libraries do right. they have in Pyongyang, right? You think this these are pretty well stocked libraries, you know, to have this information in there. And are they are all these books at the Grand People Study House, or are there specialty libraries, you know, found throughout the capital and in other cities? Right. We we know so little, really. There's also a very, very small number of foreign works that have been adapted into North Korean comic books. There's a uh, a Disney film book about dinosaurs, although that one's just a straight translation without copyright acknowledgement. A French novel about Arsène Lupin by Maurice Leblanc and The Wizard of Oz, which is condensed into about 20 pages. So they're, right. and, they're certainly... And Les, Les Miserables is, is, a, is an animated film. It's done, oh. done for foreign, done, you know, foreign production, but they worked on that. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. You, um, so again, that, that uh, shows us that, that there is some value in reading uh, fiction from North Korea as well, that we're getting an insight into what kind of access they may have, right? Right. And aside, well, still on the issue of fiction, if you look at some of the, the North Korean sociology journals, right, you can discover that there is a, you know, a body of literature, Western and Western and Chinese literature that's been translated into North Korea, translated, translated into Korean. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not illegal. It wasn't smuggled in. This was something that, you know, the government over the decades chose some number of foreign novels and short stories and poems to be officially translated and published, uh, you know, as works to read. And so you can see these, you can see these by looking at, I think it was a Cho Choson Omunhak and things like this. They tend to be, because I think bureaucracy tends to be conservative, they tend to be the older works. Right. So it's not surprising, but you could go through and you can find, you can find that Theodore Dreiser, the American novelist, right? Mm -hmm. who, 
who wrote, who wrote about American society with a critical eye. Some of his works have been translated and published in Pyongyang. Probably the, 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 the rationale for that was that he was critical of, of the United States. And so therefore it's acceptable. Maybe that's why. But, you know, I think Dickens is in Korean. I'm sure Tolstoy has been published. You know, uh, all the people prior to, let's say, 1930, where they have had time to sit, sit and think about the reputation of the author. A lot of these authors from around the world exist in legal translations in, in Pyongyang. In South Korea, during the period of military dictatorship, there were um, a lot of books that were banned. Uh, and so there were underground translations available of them. Do, you, do, you, do we know of any underground translations circulating inside North Korea of foreign literature or other books? Well, I've, I've never heard of it. But I don't know. I mean, you know, you have people sending those balloons over the border. They never put any books in them? I think only uh, biblical works or political stuff. Oh, okay, but not not like the works of um, Dickens or anything like that. Not no, that I, I've, I've heard never of heard of. I've never heard of Samistat. What do they go? I've never heard of the illegal published yeah. things circulating. But one thing that um, Charles Jenkins, Sergeant Jenkins, mentioned is that he and his American colleagues in Pyongyang engaged in the uh, the illegal copying of of DVDs, you know, from from overseas. They would buy what two two tracks, you know, was it two two tape decks, right? And they would they yep. would they would copy DVDs, and then I think I think ethnic Chinese were involved in in selling them, that sort oh. of thing. So that's been going on a long time because you think about well, DVDs, that's a while ago, right? Now it's supposed to be what the USB sticks and things like that. Right. But as far as books, I'm not sure. I've never had or heard of people doing anything in terms of book translation uh, mm. that's illegal. You, you just mentioned ethnic Chinese uh, in North Korea. And that reminds me that I've long suspected that there must be some great stuff written in the Chinese language by the, the Hwagyo, the ethnic Chinese who have lived in and sometimes multi-generations who have grown up and, and lived in North Korea uh, that's only available in the Chinese language. I've never seen anything in, in an English translation, but there must be stuff out there, surely. Oh, I'm I'm sure there must be. Um, what is it? There's that university on the border, Yanbian University. Yanbian, yeah, University of Science and Technology. Right, that is essentially for ethnic Koreans in China. And mm -hmm. given that the, that's the case, I imagine their Korean studies department must be pretty good. So uh, there must be sources there in Chinese, you know, Korean studies that we we have not seen that probably would be pretty valuable. Or not even not even the um, not even the ethnic Korean sorry, not even the ethnic Chinese who are living there as 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 permanent residents. But there's a lot of Chinese who go in and out of Pyongyang. It was a yes, a Xinhua journalist named Du Bayou who was there. I think like 2012 around that time. Mm -hmm. uh, she was on a two year stint for Xinhua. She worked out of the Chinese embassy. You know, she met a lot of people in her in her work, and she wrote she wrote a book called My Pyongyang Stories. Mm. And if you read it, it's lovely. She she describes a, a city that's clean, uh, people who are polite and friendly, and she has a grand time. And of course, you think, well, this is a Xinhua journalist. Nevertheless, yeah. you know, she gives you some she gives you some data points, and she gives you a view of Pyongyang that I think is fairly widespread among the Chinese because you can read other accounts in Chinese of tourists going into North Korea. And most part, older Chinese will say, well, this reminds me when I was young in China. This is the old China. Everything is quiet. There's so few cars here. People are polite. You know, they're, they're sort of thinking back to 
the nostalgic part of their upbringing and they're seeing it in North Korea. So yeah. again, reading Chinese sources, you get a viewpoint of North Korea that you may not get through reading English English accounts of visits to, to Pyongyang. And it's only available in, in Chinese at this stage. To my knowledge, although it may be available in Korean translation, again, the Korean, trans, uh, Korean publishing industry mm. is really good about translation. Right. Last question. Is there anything else you'd like to add about open source intelligence or uh, reading North Korean sources in the original language that uh, I haven't asked you about? I think you've been very thorough, but just to give a, a metaphor or a way of thinking about it, right? Uh, you know, there's the old parable of the uh, six blind men who come across an elephant. And right. each of the men touches one part of the elephant, and then they describe, each describes what he has experienced, and they come up with vastly different accounts of the elephant. And in fact, they argue about the nature of the elephant and think that they have the, the correct interpretation. The others must surely be wrong because they've, you know, they've experienced the elephant themselves. And I think that's a good metaphor for North Korea. So if you think about it, of course, if you're looking at North Korea, it's very good if you knew Korean, right? And English is a vast, you know, the Anglosphere has a vast publishing industry when you put it all together. So that's great. And then you have Japanese and Chinese and Russian. So that's five languages there. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you can throw in a sixth from any number of contenders, whether it's Vietnamese, Portuguese, as you mentioned earlier, could be Arabic, yeah. could be Dutch. All these languages, you know, have published accounts of North Korea, published information on North Korea that that's worth knowing. So each language by itself gives you a limited view of North Korea. But if you somehow put to, pull together a team, let's say, of six people who each took a language and then you combined everything together, you could come up with maybe something quite interesting. Mm. So, yeah, the, the, putting it all, uh, you know, crowdsourcing, looking at various different uh, languages and sources and is uh, uh, like the six blind men touching the elephant. If they work together, they'd get a better picture. Exactly, right. So the more the more languages you have the more sources you have and hopefully the more sources you have as you as you go through them and check one against the other you know and and do your do your due diligence at the end you may have a much better picture of what you're trying to see and uh, i'll put out my plea to if the uh, open source enterprise is listening to this podcast uh, please uh, put all your stuff up on the internet and make it available and we can all learn from it <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you once again, Mr. Stephen Mercado, for coming on the NK News podcast today and sharing a bit about your knowledge. Well, again, thank you for inviting me. It's, it's been a pleasure. Attention, North Korea portfolio professionals. Are you in need of more than just sloppy and spotty South Korean news coverage on the DPRK? If so, I present to you NK Pro. Born from the established news gathering reputation of NK News, NK Pro leverages staff experience and top-notch technology to provide subscribers with superior knowledge and tools to achieve their goals. Expect daily analysis, exclusive tools, and a suite of research tools that cover everything from North Korean state media to the whereabouts of DPRK vessels and aircraft. How cool is that? In a world where the landscape of North Korea seems unknowable to many, NK Pro cuts through the noise and provides you with the quality, reliability, and timeliness you need. Stay ahead, stay informed, and master the landscape with NK Pro. Trust me, it's a game changer. Interested? Visit nknews.org/professionals to claim your free 30-day trial of NK Pro. Once again, that's nknews.org/professionals.
Ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of our podcast episode for today. Our thanks go to Brian Betts and Alana Hill for facilitating this episode and to our post-recording producer genius, Gabby Magnuson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, and fixes the audio levels. Thank you, and listen again next time. <laughs>